As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, sexuality, work, extraction, art, theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A art. How exactly do we define our work? And how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? These conversations are a means to speak between intersectionalities by anchoring through our always already and ever pervasive, sexualized, racialized working bodies, our artistic bodies, our performative bodies. I hope they will contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. This episode closes out the first season and year of Sweat with a personal note. Today I'll be introducing myself and speaking about my own positioning as I come into the project, the way I perform my work, and my personal political intersections as I speak to others in conversation. Finally, I will be playing the sound piece Sweat Kamasi that I composed after the first series of interviews that were conducted when I was an artist in residence at Fokre's International Artist Residency in Kumasi, Ghana in 2021. The sound piece contains excerpts from all the interviews that I aired over the past year, as well as some of the portions of other interviews that didn't get featured in the podcast. I'll also invite you to listen to the sound piece, keeping in mind your own work and your physical body in work as you do so. So today's episode will go a little bit differently. I'm going to speak about where I come from because I think it's important to make visible who's involved in a conversation. And by that I mean what intersections I'm living with as a body, who I am when I come to the table in that moment in time, which I think is also really rapidly changing. So I've been a performing artist and musician and producer for the last 18 years in Berlin, but I didn't think I was going to become an artist. In fact, I had a pretty uneasy relationship to art. I think there were a few things that made me uneasy. One was that although my parents encouraged me to be involved in music and dance, certainly as a child, I didn't feel it was encouraged as a career choice. For them, survival was very important and finding career was very important. And I don't think that they felt like art was a way to do that. The other part that made me uneasy was as a teenager, I was pretty politically engaged and I felt that somehow art would not be a means to be politically engaged. And I think I come in and out of that perspective at different times, depending on my understanding of what art is. So a few things about me. I was born in Virginia in 1979. I'm white and I benefited from white privilege growing up, although I think that my understanding uh, around what that is has changed over time as the movement for Black Lives has changed as new language has come into use and my own understanding of what is internalized racism and being able to see more broadly how I've benefited from white privilege has changed. So I think that's also been a journey of self-discovery and continues to be. I've also benefited from having access to a great educational system I think for both of my parents who came from very little money, education was seen as the key to change your conditions and was definitely valued for other reasons, valued as a means to understand the world and to engage in critical thought. So for me, it was very clear that education was important and that it was important to figure out how I would survive. I think also my Parents felt like they wanted me to learn some of those lessons of survival that they themselves had had to learn. Wealth was never a huge value to me. 
by figuring out how to survive was. So I started working small jobs from the time I was a teenager. I worked as a babysitter. I worked for a long time as a math tutor. Then I worked on an organic farm and then I worked as a waitress. And so interesting to think about when I first started working as a waitress, that was in the year 1998. And in that year, I remember that my paycheck was $2.15 an hour in Virginia. And the idea was that I would make up minimum wage, which I believe was $4.50. I would make up that missing wage through my tips. And I worked as a waitress for about 14 years. So I was working in Virginia and then in California and then in Berlin, Germany. And when I stopped working as a waitress, probably in around 2011... I was still earning, at that time it would have been 11 euros an hour. So I was earning, you know, basically a minimum wage in Berlin. I think that waitressing was a job I felt very competent at. And what I liked about it was it wasn't a job that I necessarily took home with me. I could do it to survive on the side. I did it through college. I did it through graduate school and I did it on the side of other jobs and I I had the sense that having a job like that helped me to do the other things I loved whether it be activism where I wouldn't get paid at all or whether it be art where I would get paid very little. I also appreciated the way that it was some amount of physical work which I also want to say is a privilege to be able to be on my feet that long, to be able to hold heavy trays, and to be able to have that kind of work. What I didn't think I would be was an artist. Um, I never felt like I would be earning money as an artist. I thought I would go uh, into work at a nonprofit um, at the time that I first was looking for, I would say, a job out of university that would be more full-time. At University of California, Berkeley, I was studying peace and conflict studies, and I was interested especially in small-scale development programs and sustainable development programs that were grassroots-led in um, the Caribbean and Latin America. And I traveled to both Haiti and Nicaragua at two different times, and I worked in or stayed or lived inside two different rural farming cooperatives. In Haiti with some Haitian Americans, I was able to conduct interviews with people living there about what kind of self-organizing was happening. And when I was in Nicaragua, I was conducting interviews around gender and sustainability because in addition to these small-scale development programs that were grassroots funded, there was a program being conducted by some German organization around gender and sustainability. And there were a few people going around and speaking inside the community to people about gender roles and exploring and sharing new language around what's the difference between sex and gender and exposing some of the really traditional gender roles that were being played out in community and and asking people whether or not these could perhaps be reconfigured or thought through differently. So it was interesting work to witness this and to think about how this was actually affecting women in the community, whether it was a positive thing. And also how, when we think about division of labor based on gender, is that something that needs to be changed? Why are, who is responsible for that change? So I wrote my thesis on the way in which empowerment language was being brought into the community and what effect it might have and what it even means to so-called empower community from the outside. So this was the first time that I had really done any kind of interview process. And I was quite young when I went to Haiti. I was 19. And when I was in Nicaragua, I was 20 or 21 years old. I think both of these experiences were extremely formative for me because, first of all, it was my first time that there was a real mirror held up to my whiteness and to my class privilege in a way that hadn't been held up in the same way before. It was a mirror held up to me as to why I was there and why I had the privilege to travel there. 
Both times I traveled, I made careful decisions about with which organizations I would partner and made sure that they were not only grassroots-led, but also had connections to communities. Nevertheless, it was still very, of course, apparent my own privilege to travel there and sort of study other people. It's glaringly apparent the idea that you can go to higher education in the United States and this higher education gives you access to programs to work with people who come from very different class backgrounds simply to just enter their community at all and talk to them about who they are and what they do. Um, And I think that this alone is problematic and deserves to be looked at. Although I'd also say that, that nothing is ever stopping us from talking to each other, and yet everything is stopping us from talking to each other. Being raised as an American, there is a lot of ethnocentrism And as a privileged white American, there is a sense that you can kind of do anything that you want to, and you can go anywhere you want to. And the worth of your own knowledge is so superior and put on a pedestal. But to kind of see myself mirrored was good and shocking, especially when I was actually in Nicaragua, because I was was alone a lot of the time and alone with a lot of complicated feelings around being there, despite what I think was actually a wonderful experience. I felt a deep discomfort with the fact of being there and who was going to benefit most from the experience of conducting interviews. So I don't think it diminishes the purpose of education or of going and really understanding for oneself what are these sustainable programs like, how are they actually felt in a community or talking to people in a community? I still think that's valuable, but who takes the most value from it? And I think the answer is me Um, in the end. I'm not sure that I can give that much to the community if my presence was giving. I hope it was giving in a little way. And I also brought that into the writing itself. So, But one thing I did learn was that I really enjoyed the interview format. I enjoyed just getting to know people. And along with that, I wondered how much I could bring with my presence, with my body, what I was doing there as a person who hadn't grown up inside the community, coming from a different perspective. So when I went back to the Bay Area, I decided I needed to find a link where I felt like I could be effective as an activist. And I felt that that link could be found in immigration because... There's such a powerful link between the United States and Latin America and how that plays out in migrant flows and how the U.S. also tries to block those migrant flows specifically. And so I started working with a wonderful organization that does asylum advocacy and um, pro bono legal work for asylum seekers and other kinds of so-called economic migrants. And so working in the topic of immigration, I felt like there I could be kind of inside of my own community, but also be effective. Around that time, I um, was also really confronting my relationships of non-consensual sex that I had had as a younger person. I think that as I was coming into my own understanding of myself and my sex and my gender... I was trying to understand experiences, first sexual experiences I'd had as a teenager. And in a way, the question of whether I would describe them as rape or gray area rape or non-consensual sex. But in any case, I felt violated through these experiences and I felt disempowered. And I think that somehow, you know, thinking around what it means to be empowered or disempowered, watching, you know, watching this other organization try to kind of teach feminism maybe or teach empowerment really made me think about whether or not I could say that I was an empowered person. And it was a mirror brought to me saying, am I an empowered person? Am I empowered in my sex and my gender? You know, and I think you have to do that before you can really 
attempt, <laughs> even dare to attempt to share that with other people. So I think that that helped me understand that I had a lot of work to do. And so I started doing writing. I did a lot of writing about this experience. I used writing as a tool to explore my own understanding of sexuality and gender. And I realized that I wanted to read it out loud. I wanted to perform it through my own body. I wanted to explore these experiences of sexuality and gender and disempowerment through my own body instead of sort of through the bodies of other people. I wanted to understand as much as I could about my own body in different contexts before attempting to try to understand other bodies through their own contexts. And so this is, I think this is ultimately what actually led me into more creative work. It was these questions and dealing with those questions that led me away, away from, in a way, what I would call activism and towards what I would call art and performance, which I guess is a bit ironic because um, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to do art and I didn't want to do art that was an activist. That's for sure. So a little bit more about my positioning. I was assigned female at birth. I think of myself as a queer person with a queer sexual orientation, and I think of my gender as queer. I think it's also changed a lot as language has has changed, as I've had access to new words to describe myself, which I think in and of itself is a privilege to have access to those words. I think at this point I'm at a place where I definitely don't feel that I'm binary and I have a skeptical relationship with words like woman but on the other hand, I do have a strong relationship with my child birthing capabilities of my body, so the capacity of my body. Um, I, I still feel in touch with some of the things about my body which people feel define me as woman, like the fact that I menstruate, the fact that I could give birth. I'm a queer parent, and I do have a child that I didn't give birth to. And I have a bonus child. I feel also very comfortable with so-called masculine traits in me and very um, happy to exhibit them and happy to gender fuck. And I also think I've been privileged and supported enough to feel okay with that in-betweenness. I live in a community that's pretty supportive of that. I also live in a family that's very supportive of that. I've been um, very able bodied person. I've been privileged in my able-bodiedness, in my ability to move across borders, and also in my ability to move across identities, more or less, when it comes to, you know, gender and sex. I even had a lot of restrictions in that way. I would say my biggest restriction really has to just do with financial capabilities, and that's probably been the biggest point of limitation um, in terms of capacity. What is my capacity? My capacity is always in relation to money and, 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 to, and then therefore to work. So decisions were built around work and the work that I was doing. I also used work in order to do things, so to take me to places that I wanted to go. I would say tackle two things at once, so you know, waitressing was a job that kept me physically active when I didn't necessarily have the time or the money to join a gym. My relationship between consumerism and work has always been a close one. So I used my work to access different kinds of luxuries by the work that I did. So I've always been, for example, opposed to the idea of tourism and just the consumptive nature of arriving in a place and spending a lot of money. I don't find that it's a very particularly rewarding way to interact with a new community nor really so much of a rewarding or even relaxing experience because I think that it's very confronting in terms of not only privilege but just sustainability. So I've always looked for work that could enable me to travel. I've looked for work that enabled me to stay active. As a dancer for, for bands, I've been able to dance all the time without having the money to have dance classes. So I've learned how to dance by doing it, by working. It's, it's, it's hard to find that balance when you're actually working as a dancer, or as a performer, to also afford classes. Ironically, I find, um, at least with the wages that I've mostly gotten, that it's hard to do both. I think this is something that's often lost when we're talking about choices in work, the kinds of sacrifices that people make in their work. And it's something that's especially interested in. I think that for every single person, we all make different kinds of choices about exactly how much money we need to to survive. And of course, sometimes you it's not just that you can be a better advocate for yourself, but that actually there is, there is a limit to 
how much you can try to advocate for better wages. I know so many performers that really would like to be paid more and work hard to get paid more, but the economy keeps those wages from going anywhere. So they hustle a lot. You know, it's not that they just can get paid more just because they desire that, or even as like a whole unit, we desire that. Although I hope that it would be possible for performers to unionize. So yeah, I think it's it's not just that we work to try to get paid more, but that actually we have to make choices about what work we can do in order to survive. And that balance between not only what we can survive on, but of course, you know, how to be happy doing it. Because if you're so unhappy doing what you're doing, you're going to spend money to be happy in other ways, whether that's medicating yourself in any number of ways or consuming endless things to try to bring happiness or you have to find them in things that aren't consumptive. It's it's that these things are always interacting. They're always finding, we are always trying to find balance between these things. How little can I live on? How much don't I need? This is also a question because of course, you know, there are self-care things that cost money. It's not, it's, it can't always be entirely non-consumptive. At least it has to be in, in terms of trade, you know, which is still work. Yeah. What kinds of things do we need for our own self-care, for our own mental health? I've had to ask myself, what are my personal ideas around my own quality of life? And I think that a job or career that supports my mental health has meant in many ways, doing art, self-exploration and dealing with my own mental health, my own traumas through art. In a way, you could think about that as being a money question too, because if you can't afford a therapist, maybe make it your work. And I, I think it's interesting. I don't think that those things are made consciously at the front level, but I think that they're made somewhere in there. So my decision to go into art and performance is certainly one that has to do with mental health. I'm hopefully one that also helps others understand things about themselves, something that's impactful to other people's mental health. But I would say in the beginning, it's about me. It always comes back to the self. I think ultimately I really want to love my work always. I, I don't, ideally, I don't want to make any kind of compromises um, of course, that's not always possible. I've done different jobs that I didn't love every aspect. I didn't love uh, necessarily the people that were in control. I didn't feel like consenting to their control through working for them. Um, I didn't necessarily love their politics or the the brand or the corporation that I might be working for. I didn't necessarily love what they were putting into the world. I didn't necessarily want my body to be representing them. But I haven't found a path through life without making some of those compromises some of the time. And I think on the other hand, you know, some of the projects that I think are the most important, some examples are just some really, you know, beautiful radical art projects or queer porn, which has always been the object of derision, but I think is deeply political and important. There's not a lot of money there. When it comes to the I, the realm of creative work, and I really love the project, and I really want to support the project continuing, I really try to stay in it. And then there are compromises or there are sacrifices that tend to come into play. So that's a big part of my decisions and about the choices I make in order to explore my sexuality and in order to be brave enough to be out and hopefully to be out for, for others who can't be. So um, one thing I found was going towards sex work as a way of earning money because sex work's allowed to explore my body in different contexts, my sexuality and, and gender, and also to understand the huge variety of sexual desires of other people. You know, I wouldn't say that sex work by nature is necessarily empowering. I don't like to think of things like that. I think anything we do in this world can be empowering and needs to be given the space to be empowered and empowering. Um, by um, supporting each other in the ways that we need to be supported. Yeah, and I think sex work is a job like any other, so it's possible to learn from it. It's also possible to be disempowered through it. It's possible to have good and bad days. But I find the knowledge that sex workers have incredibly valuable and important when we're talking about life skills of being able to 
access pleasure, to help other bodies access pleasure, to understand bodies at all, to understand what it means to put hands on another body and how how healing and incredibly radical that act can be. I think it's really wonderful to be able to have frank conversations with other bodies, with other people about their bodies, to learn the language of consent and the language of desire. I think I think that it's relevant on a geopolitical level because I think that if we are able to have deep empathy with other bodies, to form physical intimacies with other bodies, and not just ones that are either family or chosen family, but also strangers, also people we don't know well, it helps us to have a deeper sociological imagination and understanding of difference, which is essentially what can lead us away from violent acts in the world. I would say that for the most part, um, in all the different sex workshops I've had, it's been very, very important and, imp- and empowering for me. For me, work has been something I've always felt like I had to do because I felt like I had to do work in order to survive. I've also wanted to feel fulfilled in my work and having a close relationship between doing something that feels good for my mental health and my physical body and my soul and my creative spirit and trying to nurture myself on a more holistic level through this, through work. I do want work to have a more expansive definition where care work, love work, relationship work, all these things are beautiful kinds of work and important kinds of work, valued kinds of work, work that we actually are able to give time to. You know, I work hard in my relationships. I work hard to speak to my family, to make space for understanding me and the kind of my generation of family that I'm having. And I find that that is relationship work, that's family work, that's communication work. And that work is good. That is good work. And it's hard. It's both. You know, I had to do a lot of work just to to speak to my family and say, hey, I'm going to have a kid with two other people. I'm going to be part of an alternative family. And I'm asking you to be part of that with me. And it might be difficult at first to understand yourself as part of this family when maybe you don't see yourself in this child. Maybe the child isn't related to you. How do you, maybe you don't understand the way in which I'm forming partnership, but to ask and to speak directly and ask people's help in order doing that, I think that's, it's challenging and important work to foster a sense of chosen family and connection between blood family and chosen family, if you can. And I, again, I would say I have privilege that has allowed me to do that. I'm also really interested in terms of the word performance because I think a lot of times people think about performance or performativity as being fake or being inauthentic. And I really, I want to look at that a little bit more closely. First of all, the idea of being authentic at all. What is the um, obsession with authenticity, with realness? And how is this very much affected on a temporal and a linear timeline or one which sort of says the past is in the past and I'm no longer that thing that I was and I'm also not the thing that I'll be in the future. I'm only the present moment. I think we often think about authenticity in terms of a very present tense kind of identity and we sort of forget that, um, you know, let's say for 16 years I wasn't having sex with other people, 16 years of my life. And although those are in the past, we could say developmentally those I am not that person, those things are in the past. In another sense, I am that person. That's that person still lives in me. That's an unpartnered person. I, you know, my identity is not necessarily around one-on-one partnership at all. In fact, I was a dependent on at least two, if not more, people. So when I think about who I am as an independent or dependent person, I try to think about all the different ways in which I've lived independency and will live independency in the future. And not that I am simply an independent person because I am now. Also, as well as how I relate to my sexuality, you know, I I would say maybe right now I find myself particularly oriented towards women and trans and queer people. But I, I do know that I haven't pursued those relationships all the time throughout my life. And I'm, I'm okay with those contradictory identities. I want to accept all of those orientations that I have been in the past and that I will be in the future. For me, this slipperiness is, is authentic. And I think I fall into this idea of wanting to be authentic too. 
be clear about who I am, but that authenticity is very, very, very messy. It's not a one truth. It's very, it's very nuanced. And I want to accept all of that into me. So I'm not sure that I could really perform any one thing that would be authentic. Performance of self would be something that would be very confused, nonlinear, multifaceted. And and I think that that's in direct contradiction to what it actually means to choose when we're out in the world. We do we do have to make choices or we do have to, it is hard to represent more than one thing at one time. And I think that's also okay. So that I also have to accept that in any one day, I can only wear one outfit and that outfit represents me. And in one day I can kind of choose one kind of work. One day I can maybe just work helping someone record sound and maybe I can take care of my child in the evening, but I might not have time for other kinds of important work that needs to be done. Maybe it's a conversation with my partner. Maybe it is calling my family member. Maybe it's self-care work. And so I'm not sure that there is necessarily more authentic work that could be done in any one given moment, but that there's only a choice. There's just simply the choice to do one thing and to try to do it in a focused way. And that, in a sense, is inauthentic because it, it will never represent all of the things that I am. And I, I want to get comfortable with that too. And actually, in order to be clear for other people in a moment, to be clear, focused, and, and, and present. Maybe presence means choosing, not about being the most authentic, but actually just about choosing clarity in a moment. At least perhaps this is where I am right now. And I think that the clarity, the choice of just being one, of maybe being one thing in one moment, it's not about denying all the other things that we are. It's just about being present with and and then seeing how that develops into a kind of dialogue and probably transforms ourselves, transforms what we actually are. So I'm going to take now some time to share with you the sound piece I put together for Sweat with all of these different interviews that I did in Kumasi, uh, some of which were heard throughout the podcast, others which were not. And so you'll hear new voices if you've been following the podcast. And I want to ask the, you as a listener to take a moment to think about your own body and all the different kinds of work that you do and think about how your body physically occupies space, so the shapes that your body makes as you're doing different kinds of work. Maybe when you're sitting having a conversation with, with a family member, a partner, a friend, someone that you know, you're having a deep and meaningful conversation with, how do you sit or stand or lie down? Or how does your body look when you go to your workplace, whether that workplace is in your home or maybe in another location? What shapes do your body take? So just take a moment to, if you can, I invite you to turn out the lights and Think more about a physical and auditory experience. Get comfortable. Uh, make sure where you are is warm. And uh, I invite you, as you're listening, to cycle through some different ways in which your body is taking shapes, moving through shapes as you're working. Uh, and you might notice also how, how and where it brings you pain or pleasure. I know that when I'm working... For a long time, uh, you know, in front of my computer, I get a lot of sciatic pain. And um, sometimes I don't pay enough attention to it or I don't pay attention to it outside of my work. It's as though it doesn't exist. So sort of invite you to kind of revisit those positions and take an outside look at it. And I invite you to think about all the different kinds of ways in which you do work with a very expansive idea of what work means, the way you perform your work and you make choice. This is a gentle suggestion for listening to sweat. Yes. 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 Yes.
I was making copies and everyone was saying, oh, you're a great artist. So these praises they were saying to me made me believe I was really an artist. So I kept saying to myself, I'm an artist. I just walk in this space and I tell people, oh, what are you? I'm an artist. Beautiful. to reclaim languages that demonize me. I claim blackness is is not our our language. Blackness is, is a racial language and I, I claim it so I'm black queer person. Um, the same way I'm reclaiming also any language that demonizes me or criminalizes me. God has blessed you, you have plenty money. So tell him how, how do you get money? All white men have money. So what is the secret? Uh, <laughs> I think the world is a very uneven place. It is, it is, it is.
Asayanta. Oh, some people love me in the markets uh, every day. And then the people, like the people know me uh, in the market. I'm selling tomatoes, ginger, and whatever. The money. Mm. The thousand. It's not my profit, but my profit is hundred cities a day. <laughs> this is <that> case. <laughs> is an Edinkra symbol, which means patience, self-control, and discipline. Simple. They are all made in Ghana, and they are all Edinkra symbols. Early ages, when a child is delivered, they make a symbol, and they'll be like, oh, this child is Jinyame, only God. This child is Kumpa, good husband. And through that, they made it names of our clothes from indigenous knowledge. That's why I said before ages, my grandmother was not even born. These are the car designs were there. You've been working here for a long time? Like oh, yes. Your whole, li- oh, yeah, your whole adult life? Oh, no. no, no I'm no. a nurse too. Ah, okay. When I close from work, I come and help. Before I go home to sleep for a while, then I wake up to go to work. Um, right currently, I'm on night duty. So I'll go home like in three hours time to rest. Then when it's six, I go to work. also known as craziness artist. Performance is an attitude like that is more embodied. It becomes a kind of belief. Of course, I'm living it as a choice. I'm living it as a decision, as a revolution, as a protest. <laughs> I do remember Will you tell that him? God is a good creator. Yes, because if I look at my color, 
and your color. We are all human beings by different colors. Love to wear. I'm teaching Arabic and Quran. Yes. Actually, I'm a fashion designer too. Especially when you are introducing a new topic. Uh-huh. So that song become the one you manufactured yourself. Uh, even in the curriculum, there are times where this music and dance comes to play. And we have children who come in with different problems from their house. And sometimes I feel a male health teacher will not be able to handle the issue as I will be able to because I am a mother. Yes. Giving them a pat at their back. Touching them alone. Letting, letting the children feel that they are important. the residency I started to look at my work in terms of materiality uh, in terms of my work which is decayed and materials how 
do I look as my personal body? So in this performance, I'm looking at myself as a material. I'm looking at myself as the wood now and asking the same question, the mortality, uh, individual experience their death and what kind of death and what at what moment and how does death occur to us as an agency that you need to face. to be an artist. I don't know if I can afford to be an artist. I don't know if I'm good enough to be an artist. As a revolution, as a manifest. Stranger and long way from home. 
myself from I don't know how to say it in English because I'm not good in English, you understand? But it moves me a lot. Do you want me to recite what you fatty have for you? Sure. Billahi Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahmanirrahim Maliki Yawmiddin Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in Ihdinas siratal mustakim Siratal ladhina an'amta alayhim Ghayril maghdubi alayhim waladdallim as you can see, I was moving myself. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen Ar-Rahmanirrahim Maliki yawmiddin Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين انعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, Sex, Shuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Please join me again next time for Sweat. It airs every second Tuesday in the month on Collaboradio. You can also listen to the interview portion of the show again by subscribing to the Sweat podcast, which is available on all platforms. Thanks so much, and until next time.